Hey everyone, we're back this week with our new health series called Hormone Happy Hour that I do with Kea Perowit, my dear co-host on the series and co-founder in our business, Bia Wellness. And every Wednesday, Hormone Happy Hour will feature an in-depth interview with a leading women's health expert. Each expert will teach you step-by-step how to eat, think, and move in a way that is designed to help you feel great and create an abundance of energy in your life so you can build your own empire. Empire. Now let's jump into this week's episode. I hope you enjoy it. In today's episode, we are talking all about plant medicine. So not only psychedelics, but also things like coffee, essentially any sort of medicine we can get from plants. But we do talk a lot about psychedelics. And what was really interesting about this episode is that Dr. Maya Sheetreet, who is an expert in this space, explained that we don't necessarily need to take this medicine in order to benefit from it. And I thought that was really interesting because in my head, I imagine that you had to go on this huge, massive trip in order to benefit from this type of medicine, but that's actually not true. And it reminded me, Yasmin, when you were telling me about your experience taking mushrooms and how you kind of had a different experience from the people around you. How did this conversation make you feel after going through your journey and then hearing from somebody talk about all the ways in which we can benefit from these plant medicines? Yeah, it was so interesting, Kay and actually got me thinking a lot about my experience. And I know I've talked a little bit about it maybe on different podcasts, but we did it in like a guided professional setting and it was in a group setting. And, you know, with these podcasts and just anything, I'm just curious to experience it. But I will say I didn't have like a very strong calling and they didn't give me like a macro dose. It wasn't anything too big. So also, you know, that kind of shifts my own personal experience. And, you know, I still thought it was interesting. I think I still had some insights, but because it was mostly in a group setting, I personally was still feeling a lot of people's energy. So I felt a little distracted. If I ever felt like I wanted to do it in the future, or if I had a calling, maybe I do it one-on-one with like, obviously a trained practitioner, so I wouldn't pick up on other people's energy. But what I thought was so interesting about Dr. Maya, which you also brought up, Kay, is like, you don't necessarily have to go on like this trip or to do mushrooms, you know, and even that my dose was lower, like she was saying, even being around the plants and also like the biggest learning I had from my own experience, which sounds so funny because it was a retreat. You know, think about it. We were doing yoga. We were eating clean. It was very much like a relaxing weekend before we went in and did our own experience. And honestly, I think the two days even before doing the mushrooms were the most impactful. So I think it kind of goes into like the intentionality behind things, the mindfulness behind things. And I think Dr. Maya in this interview, even outside of plant medicine, we talk a lot about just like tapping into ourselves, our intuition, how we think about stress and just like that mind body connection is so strong, whether you want to go down the route of plant medicine or not. So yeah, it was actually a really insightful conversation, Kaya. Yeah. And I love what you said about calling because one of the biggest things that Dr. Maya explained in this interview is that if you don't have a calling to do mushrooms or do ayahuasca or do MDMA or do any of these things that are really popular right now, that's your body telling you that it's not the time to do those things. And I thought that was so powerful because sometimes people can fall into peer pressure or sometimes they can feel like, oh, I just want to get wrapped up in whatever everybody else is doing. But it's so important to kind of tune into our bodies and say, well, what does my body actually want? What does my body actually need? She said that she's even gained benefit from these types of plants by growing them and not even taking them. So that was really, really cool. With all of that being said, there is so much fascinating research on the benefits of plant 
plant medicine and things like psychedelics. So I think if you are toying with the idea of doing it, or if you feel a calling, or if you're just interested in the research around it, you're going to love this interview. Dr. Maya Shitri is a neurologist, herbalist, urban farmer, and author of The Dirt Cure and The Plant Medicine Experience. She's been featured in the New York Times, The Telegraph, NPR, Sky News, The Dr. Oz Show, and much, much more. Dr. Maya is the founder of Terrain Institute, where she teaches earth-based programs for transformational healing, including professional training programs for psychedelic-assisted approaches. She works and studies with indigenous communities and healers from around the world and is a lifelong student of ethnobotany, plant healing, and the sacred. So let's get into it. So Dr. Maya, we hear the word plant medicine quite a bit, but I think some people are still pretty confused about what that even means. So maybe for our listeners today, can you talk about what it is and maybe who it might be good for to start? Sure. Well, I guess like I would even start by saying, I kind of want to touch on the idea that all plants offer medicine right? Mm -hmm. So there's different levels and different layers. And in my book, I talk about master plants, which are also not necessarily one thing. Master plants are powerful plants that alter our way of thinking or our consciousness in some way and are considered powerful masters in indigenous cultures. So it can include psychedelic plants, but it can also include coffee. It could include cannabis. It could include cacao. It could include, you know, the coca plant, right? These are not psychedelic plants, but they are plants that alter us. I mean, think about um, tobacco, right? All of these plants that are actually considered very sacred master teacher plants for millennia. And they're not necessarily, you know, going to make you trip or feel completely altered so that you can't function, but they're considered to be very powerful because, right, like I know I never was a coffee person, but I am going through a coffee phase of my life right now um, that is like kind of instigated by the pandemic. And it is such an important ritual for me each day. It's like, this is my time with this master and with myself. And it does change me. And I think, you know, people will go to some lengths to get their chocolate or their coffee or things like that, right? So those are master plants. But then there are this other category, a particular category of master plants that are that are psychedelic plants. And that's, you know, really kind of, I would say, all the rage right now, both in kind of the general populace more than ever before, and also in academic and medical settings. It's now, right, like I would say almost every major prestigious institution in the world has a psychedelic research center or at least labs that are doing very specific work on psychedelics and consciousness. And that is because we are finding that what they offer is profound and transformative, especially for conditions that are very difficult to treat in conventional medicine and even in functional or integrative medicine. So major depression that's been refractory to every kind of medication, PTSD, addiction, and I'm talking all kinds of addiction. We're looking now at like eating disorders. We're looking at dementia as a possibility. We're looking at autoimmunity. So there's not just psychiatric kinds of conditions, but in fact, even physical chronic illnesses that we only have day-to-day medicines to kind of manage. And what we're seeing with this kind of approach in a macro dose. And we can talk more about the ways that people can engage because there's all different kinds of ways. Um, But in a macro dose, which is kind of the classical, you know, trip or journey, right? Um, One dose 
with support before, during, after, right? Mm -hmm. And all of these studies can totally interrupt lifelong major depression or addiction. One dose only. Wow. There's so much to unpack with what you said. I think it's interesting that you brought up coffee too, right? Because as a ritual and as being a master plant, because that can also be abused, right? So people like when you don't respect that master plant, like for its use, sometimes like people can abuse these master plants too. So I, I want to talk about that, but I actually want to back up because I want people to understand how all of this works coming back to cellular memory. So I'm doing EMDR right now. And one thing I've always understood is that the body keeps score, but you don't really get it until you're in it. And so I've been understanding just like all of the ways in which my body has kept score from the past. So I want you to talk about cellular memory, but also like what type of physical and mental conditions can arise from childhood trauma? Yeah, amazing. So <laughs> this is, I'm going to just start by saying that I, since December, I got this shoulder injury. Mm. Um, in a, I got a shoulder injury actually last October. And then since December, I had tried, I'd gone to my osteopath. I'd gone to get like Rolfing, I got, I did a million things. I changed my diet. I was like everything under the sun, nothing was helping. And I was in a lot, I was in kind I was in agony. I mean, it was very, very bad. It was like in even interrupting my work and when I was using my keyboard. And I finally decided, I was like, maybe this is energetic. I thought I'm gonna go to this massage therapist person that I think does energy work. And I went, kind of tricked myself into it because I'm not someone who gets massages, you know, unless I'm like, on vacation and there's a spa and it's like, you know, once in a blue moon. And I had definitely not gotten one for five years. And I went to this person and she gave me a two hour massage. She does them in her home. So like she was, re I was referred to her and, um, I finished that massage and I thought to myself, my shoulder still was a problem, but I thought, I don't think I've had a balanced nervous system ever in my entire life, ever, because of how I felt after that massage, which was like so peaceful. And so I started to go back. I like, it was, it felt crazy. It felt luxurious. Like, who am I? You know, and I had to go during my work day, which was unheard of. It was a three hour thing. And I went weekly. I've been going almost weekly for now many, many months. And to the point of cellular memory, I feel like we've been taught that trauma is something we have to go to therapy to unpack. And for me, and I think therapy has a role, absolutely. But for me, cellular memory has been demonstrated through somatic experiencing and physical touch and massage that has been regular. I feel like I am just peeling away all these layers of trauma. And I did have a lot of capital T trauma in my childhood. You know, my parents separated. There was a lot of like violence. My father actually took his own life when I was 11. Like I had a very deep, difficult childhood in, in many ways. It wasn't all terrible. You know, I wasn't wanting for like food or, you know, the basics or anything like that. But, you know, but I learned a lot about cellular memory in these past several mm -hmm. months, honestly, because of, because of that. And, and I want to say that or open kind of this conversation about cellular memory, because I don't think that psychedelics or master plants or any one thing is the only way to unpack trauma or 
heal our cellular memories or work with them. However, just to kind of say what cellular memory is, it's first of all coming from the idea that our cells are intelligent. Every single cell in our body, and this is actually quantum science, quantum medicine, which is a very real, I think, burgeoning field that is incredibly exciting to me. Really, it's like these emergent systems that every cell in our body has in some way decided, each as its own individual sentient self, to come together to make Maya Shitri, you know. Um, and, and so there is a way in which we are having to manage and be in conversation with, let's say, these intelligent beings within us. And the way that they show us that they're intelligent in one way is because when they experience stress, and that stress can be physical, mental, emotional, spiritual stress. This is not just, you know, again, like, you know, I was, I, I didn't get food, you know, I was in a famine or whatever, or I lived through a war. I mean, it's all different kinds of, of things that can happen that instigate what we call the cell danger response. And cells actually respond as though they're in danger and they change the way they operate and they even change what they do and the way they look. Our mitochondria, um, which are these, you know, most people remember mitochondria because maybe they learned about it in like middle school or high school at least, but mitochondria are these energy makers of the cell, but they're actually much more than that. They don't just make the energy that runs the cell, they also, um, are kind of arbiters in a way of cellular memory. And a mitochondrion that is um, under stress or instigated or traumatized um, actually will go from being branched spaghetti structure where it's in communication, it's exchanging, it's getting nutrients, it's getting rid of waste, right? To being in a meatball configuration, right? So it's the spaghetti versus meatball. The meatballs are little balled up, right? Think of, think of quarantine, right? Like we're not exchanging love and affection and communication. We're not getting rid of waste as well, etc. So a cell that is in danger mode is among other things in this meatball mitochondria mode where it's actually not doing all the things that it should be doing to function well, optimally, and take us in the direction of growth. Instead, we're in a place of protection all the time. And we can't operate and evolve as well when we're in a place of protection. And that can happen with big T trauma, right? Like what we call the ACEs, the adverse childhood events. There's a lot of data on this now. You know, death, incarceration, divorce, um, abuse, physical, sexual, emotional. I mean, right, there are, unfortunately are a lot of things that are very common for a lot of us in our lifetimes that um, count as ACEs and their scores for you know how many and all of that. And we know that changes our cells, it changes our, our, um, our fascia, it, it lives in our brains, it actually changes our nervous system structure. So we know that these are you know legitimately things that instigate cell danger and cellular memories. But we also know lowercase t trauma, right? Which could be being bullied in the classroom. It could be, um, you know, having a caretaker who was late to pick us up from school every day, right? Things that like trigger our nervous systems and make us feel like alone or scared on a regular basis is another way. And I think like the the beauty, right, of 
all of this because of course there's a lot of pain involved and we operate from that cellular memory a lot. We can talk more about it, but the beauty of it as well is that it is something that we can make meaning of and ultimately um, shift and change as we evolve and grow in our lifetimes. And I actually think that's a big part of our task as human beings is to make meaning of challenging experiences that we have because it's it's kind of inherent to the human experience to have challenges and i think you know there's no way to completely erase that although there are definitely ways to hold space in more kind and compassionate ways hey everyone it's yasmin here in 2020 i was struggling with some debilitating health stuff I just got off birth control and suddenly I had acne, mood swings, breast tenderness, and really painful periods. I tried so many things, but the one thing that worked was something called seed cycling. I know you're probably thinking, seed cycling? What the heck is that? It's a natural way to support your hormones using four specific seeds throughout your cycle. The challenge is that seed cycling can be a little complicated to do and kind of time consuming. So I decided to make an organic seed cycling product that is so easy to use. We make it effortless for anyone to get started today. It's called Bia and it's a super easy way to add something powerful to your diet to support your hormones, regulate your cycle, and bring back balance. To learn more about Bia and join our community with thousands of incredible women all over the world, go to BiaWellness.com and that's spelled B-E-E-Y-A Wellness.com. And check out the show notes for our promo code to get $10 off your first purchase. Thanks so much for listening and now let's get back to today's episode. Wow. So much of what you said just resonates with me. I'm like, where do I even start? It's so fascinating, Maya, because I think for so long and just similar to what you mentioned, like we have so or not everybody, but we have so much tenseness in our bodies and we don't know what it looks like to be a little bit calmer until you get that massage or do some type of somatic release. And I know for me, similar to you, every time I get a massage, I feel like a completely different person. I think Kaya asked me the other day on a team call. It's like, what's your dream life? Like, what would it look like for you to know you made it. And I was like, I think I would genuinely get a massage every day, but it sounds so stupid. But after hearing you, I'm like, I feel like a completely different person. And I definitely feel that tension, especially with like life when it gets stressful for whatever reason in my neck, in my back ever since I was a kid. So I just think that's so interesting. But I'm curious because for so long, I didn't know that lived in my body. So how do we know if we're operating from this cellular memory? If someone's listening, they're like, okay, this seems interesting, but like, is that me and and my life right now? Well, I want to say just as a a point to feeling completely different, that one of the things that kept me going early on in these weekly massages was that my family were all saying how much nicer I was. I know. My husband's like, can you go all the time? I'm like, (laughs) please live with a massage therapist. No, (laughs) it's so true. And, And I don't think there is anybody who is not living with tension and anxiety in this world at this time and maybe ever, but certainly not now. And the ones who, you know, as someone who gets to be behind closed doors with people, I will say that no matter how well people appear to be doing from the outside, they Mm -hmm. still are operating from anxiety. They still have fears. They still have insecurity about their bodies, about their lives, um, about their purpose. I mean, all of the existential things, you know, What I notice is one of the most isolating things that people experience is this sense 
that their suffering is harder or worse or different mm -hmm. or they are the only ones. And it's just, it's not true. We're all in it. We're all in this soup together. No matter how many tools we have, no matter how much we understand trauma or cellular memory or spirituality or functional medicine or anything, we're just in the soup. That's okay. I think like the key is talking about it and being in connection and being loving with each other and not bringing these kind of empire ways of, you know, operating. Like I just have to push through it and like nobody can know and having this facade and this persona of being important or knowing it all or having all the answers, right? Um, even for doctors, right? Especially for doctors because our lives are wild, you know? And I, in behind closed doors, doctors are just a mess, which should surprise nobody. But anyway, you know, to your point of our people operating from cellular memory, I'm gonna give an example, okay? And then I'm gonna kind of like just draw it out in specific kinds of conditions. But um, cellular memory is you're with your spouse or with your friend or with your kid or whatever, and um, they say something and you are triggered, okay? So you're like, I can't believe they said that. I'm, you know, whatever, that jerk, I'm furious. How could they, whatever. And like, you you go down this like, right? And like, you're gone. You're in la la land of like, whatever it is, road rage or just anger or whatever. And like, oftentimes it doesn't mean, okay, let's, let's set aside that this person said something maybe crappy to you, okay, or triggering. Um, but a lot of times what's happening is we're operating from places where we have felt our boundaries be crossed or felt um, violated or felt not heard or not respected many times in the past or one really significant time, maybe like growing up in our family where they didn't ever understand us or they told us we always had to be this way or that way or shut us down when we tried to say what we needed, etc. And then we start to get triggered by lots of different kinds of things which may or may not actually be problematic in the moment. But part of what they're doing is bringing up very problematic things that have happened to us in our past somewhere in our past, especially in our childhood, but not only, where we're not operating in the present moment. We're operating from something that's happened to us way back when, we're not operating like adults, whatever the heck that is, but we're not coming from a thoughtful, considered, considerate place where we say, hey, you know what, like, I don't love the way you just said that. Could, could you maybe rephrase it because that's a little hurtful? And instead we're like, you asshole, you know, or whatever. Um, and it's like all this anger or rage or grief or fear that's coming from like five-year-old Maya, right? Um, all blowing up, right? So that is one way that cellular memory operates in just like day-to-day -day life could be this very extreme response to something that we could have navigated completely differently. And it's because of what's living in our bodies, right? Because trauma is not what happened to us. It's how it lives in our bodies. That is really actually what trauma is. And it's the reason that some people can have, you know, a terrible thing happen in their lives that is clearly would be considered by everybody trauma and they're fantastic and have a fantastic life. And somebody else is completely flattened by it and cannot get their life together um, and feel like they're floundering is because of how it lives in their body. 
um, which could have also to do with being an immigrant or having ancestral trauma and lineage things, right? I mean, it can be all kinds of other pieces that, that lead to the way we embody our trauma in this cellular memory. And the way that this can ultimately look is depression, anxiety, eating disorders, PTSD, right? Um, even things like autoimmunity. I see so much autoimmunity in people who are so hard on themselves and they're like attacking themselves. I mean, it's just like our, our cells take things very, they express things very literally, I guess I would say. So it's like an emotional or, or mental or spiritual kind of thing expresses by ourselves in a physical way because that's how they express. That's just how they express. And we have made the mistake in medicine in many ways, even in mental health, to take it very literally um, and try to be very like physical. And I'm not saying that things like, you know, that physical things don't matter. Our food matters, our hormones matter, our, you know, neurotransmitters matter, our, all of those things matter. But at the same time, sometimes the underlying issues are more emotional or spiritual. And what I love about talking about psychedelic master plants and what they can offer is that they even open the vocabulary around consciousness, around cellular memory, around emotional and spiritual bodies that we have, right? That we never have talked about in modern medicine. We're now starting to talk about it. So I want to I want to dive into that a little bit more. What do we know now about the way that psychedelics work in our brains and our bodies? What are they actually doing? So there's so many levels to this and obviously, you know, we could we could do a whole podcast just on that. So I'm going to kind of try to be brief and say that, you know, I have a whole chapter on this um, where I just nerd out and have like the best time, basically. Um, hopefully everyone, I think, can keep up with it um, in, in the book. But here I would just say a few things. One way is, so there are kind of what I would think of as more mental ways or how people would think of as mental ways where we know that psychedelics stimulate certain receptors, a certain kind of serotonin receptor. And a lot of people know about serotonin because it's related to SSRIs, depression, et cetera. Okay. And, so, and that's a treatment, you know, also for OCD and um, anxiety and eating disorders and a lot of things, right? So that's, so serotonin is a major factor a particular receptor in how psychedelics work. Now you would think, well, yeah, okay, we have serotonin in our bodies, we make it, and also we have drugs, um, pharmaceuticals like SSRIs that stimulate serotonin, like what's the difference with um, psychedelics? And what we found this year, I say we, but it's brilliant researchers doing this in their labs, you know, what has been discovered is that we have, most receptors are on the outside of the cell. Okay. And, and they work by like, you know, binding the neurotransmitter and then they are the communicator, these receptors that bind the, the serotonin, for example, um, they communicate to the inside of the cell and tell them what to do. Okay. But what we've discovered is that psychedelics cross the cell membrane on their own because of their structure. It's a different kind of structure. They're not serotonin. They're, they're plants and they, um, cross into the cell and bind to intracellular serotonin receptors that are otherwise maybe unstimulated. These intracellular, meaning inside the cell, there are serotonin receptors being stimulated and they do 
altogether different things, which explains a little bit why we don't hallucinate, <laughs> you know, for example, when we take an SSRI most of the time, at least, and, and when we just have regular serotonin. So that's one way is that we understand that serotonin is being um, kind of utilized by our cell um, in a different way, or, or serotonin agonists, we'd say, like who, sort of serotonin lookalikes. So that's one way. Another way is actually um, through DMT, which is um, known to be kind of a psychedelic compound, but it's actually found in many, many plants. We ourselves, human beings and mammals, make DMT in our own nervous systems in small amounts. And it doesn't necessarily, you know, give you psychedelic experiences. Um, it has to, because we break it down very quickly. But um, DMT itself actually is an antioxidant in the body. And what we're seeing is when we stimulate certain kinds of receptors, different receptors, it actually acts as this very powerful antioxidant in our cells that um, probably is gonna be helpful the more we study. So far, we're already seeing it's probably gonna be helpful for cancer, for um, Parkinson's, for dementia, for autism, for um, retinal degeneration, like really difficult to treat conditions. Again, um, we're seeing that the way that DMT works with what's called the Sigma-1R receptor um, actually is this incredible antioxidant by way of DMT. So that's another way. On a, on a bigger scale though, right? And I think what will be the most maybe interesting to people is um, it interrupts kind of these grooves, these pathways that we're constantly living in mentally. So there's this concept called predictive coding. And predictive coding is basically, kind of goes back to that idea of being triggered, right? Where you are, maybe you once walked into a room and there was a, a tiger there waiting to pounce, okay? And so, going forward um, are gonna be scared when you see a tiger. But what we don't realize, okay, and this is cellular memory, but it's also the way our nervous system is structured, is we think when we walk into a new situation that we are seeing the whole situation as it is. All the details, right? Like you walk into the room, but actually when you walk into the room, you're only picking out a few key details, just a few, and filling in everything else with past experience. Now. On the one hand, it's very good for survival, right? I mean, this is what wisdom is, right? Is like you use the wisdom of past experiences to make good decisions in the future. But sometimes we get stuck in something like thinking there's a tiger in the room, right? When there's no tiger in the room, only because once there was, and then this time we're walking in and we need to have a difficult conversation with our partner, right? And it turns out there's no tiger there, but we feel like there could be a tiger there. And then we're in this thing and we can't get out of it. We are operating from a place of fear because we're filling in a lot of details that are not really there. They were there sometime in the past. What psychedelics do is shut down the parts of the brain called the default mode network, which um, create that predictive coding. They, it just takes it offline temporarily. So for a period of time, we're able to see things um, let's say how they are in the present moment with all of the details, and it can be very intense um, to see life in that kind of truthful way sometimes, and that's why people have sometimes difficult experiences in their journeys, but most of the time, once the default mode network comes online again, there's a lot of lessons and meaning to be made of whatever it is that happened, you know, wonderful, difficult, or otherwise, 
that allows them to say, hey, you know what? Like, I understand that's really all about my mother. And it actually, like, maybe I can understand that she had her problems. She came to me in these ways that were problematic, but like, that's not how I have to live my life. And you can separate and step out of these grooves, this predictive coding that um, otherwise has kind of been running your life and you didn't even know. You know, I'm so, I have so many questions, but I'm so curious about dosages. So I'm going to kind of share a story and then maybe this will lead us to like macro, micro, or just dosages in general. But I did a psilocybin journey and I felt like it accentuated who I was. So what that, what kind of um, happened during that time for me was we did it in a group setting and any movement, you know, my husband was next to me. He was moving quite quickly when we took um, the plant medicine. And I made this whole story in my head that he's emotional, that he's crying. Oh my gosh. And I was doing the same thing with any other movement I would hear from everyone in that room when really fast forward the next day or, you know, later in the day, he was laughing and I was creating all these stories. And I was like, that is so interesting that on plant medicine, I was kind of doing the same thing. Maybe I do in life. I wasn't conscious of it, but like very much so in that setting, which I just think is interesting. So is that because maybe I didn't have so much of a higher dose that I wasn't able to be a little bit different than like who I am? Or was it that it sometimes will bring up who you are for you to be reflective after the fact, if that makes Absolutely. sense? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So I think for a lot of people, the experience of the journey itself, if they are having a macro dosing experience, the experience of the journey itself is not necessarily where the meaning is made. The meaning is made at, oftentimes afterwards. And that's why all of the studies that have been done include preparation support, you know, as, and, and integration support, as well as, you know, being cared for and held during an experience. Um, it's because of the meaning making. I mean, some people come out of a journey and are like, I am the Messiah, right? And it's like, <laughs> they need somebody really and truly. I know people this has happened to. They're like, it's on me to save the world. It's on me, you know? And you just, you need to have either a person or a group or even a great friend who can kind of reflect and be like, dude, yeah, like a lot of us feel that way when we come out of a journey. But like, what do you think this is saying about you and how you operate in the world? Like, Maybe you're getting put in the spotlight that you don't need to rescue everybody, that like you start with yourself, you know, and then you model, right? Or whatever it is, right? Because yeah, like it puts spotlights on things sometimes. Like these are not like fixers. I wanna be really clear about that. You don't just go into a journey, have an experience, and now you're fixed. Even though we say, oh, in one dose, but the one dose is because people are actually being opened up and bro broken out of this like, you know, robotic way that so many of us actually are operating and not even realizing from this unconscious programming, right? One of the things that I didn't mention that, um, that these do is create plasticity in the brain. So we make new connections in new ways that we could never make before. So what you were kind of seeing is probably amplified a way that you are causing your own suffering in your life, maybe by, you know, judging or feeling, um, you know, like you are being judged by the people around you or, you know, who knows? I mean, right. I will, I will leave that for you to kind of unpack, but it is absolutely, um, the medicine of the experience is 
this portal is opened, this window to yourself is opened or to the world or to the aliveness of the world or to your, you know, relationships, etc. And, and then you have to decide to, you know, walk through that door, enter that portal, etc. Right. Because if you just have the window open and then, you know, you're like, great, the window's open and then you walk away, it's your life's probably not going to change that much. Um, and those are, I think, also the people who either go back again and again and again and again, or um, but never seem to really grow and change um, very much, or the people who are like, this didn't, this, this doesn't work. You know, what was interesting is, so I was not there, but Yasmin uh, went on that experience with my brother, who is her husband, and my parents. My parents were actually there too, and they did this, which was really incredible. I mean, they're, yeah, they're from... <laughs> a different generation, they're immigrants, like you would not hear of Indian parents going to do a psychedelic journey, a guided one. And what was really cool about the experience that I heard from everyone is particularly what my father went through. And my dad is 75, he'll be 75 next year. So he's coming into a different period of his life. He's getting older. And what he went through after we had all talked about it and, and discussed was really this feeling of like, I'm good, I'm complete. Like whatever comes next, meaning the afterlife, which it gives me like chills to think about even now, like I'm ready for it. Not saying that that's gonna happen anytime soon. He's really healthy, he's doing great. But just that at this point, him being a 75 year old man, he would start to think about those things. And he had visions of the afterlife and just feeling very like settled and complete in who he is. And one thing I've heard a lot about is that this type of plant medicine can be really helpful for people who are coming to the end of their life, whether it be just from older age or whether it be because of illness. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, so I've done some events and interviewed a lot of amazing researchers who, um, do this exact work. And um, one of them is Tony Bosis. And he basically does this work with cancer, people who have um, very progressed cancer who are scared of death. And like, you know, that is one example of um, people who can have, right? And there, these were people who were experiencing severe anxiety and depression and went through these experiences with mushrooms. And um, the vast majority of them felt that way, felt at peace. And like they were able to enjoy the rest of their lives, whatever was coming their way. And one of the things that struck me when I was looking at that research and, and hearing about people's experiences is that we all, for the most part in our society, are not okay with death, are not okay with aging, are obviously fearful of getting sick and all of that. I mean, People, you know, think about like women are dying their hair to not look older. I mean, right? Like we're everybody's like, you know, anti-aging and this whole thing. And like part that's a lot of that is really um fear of death, right? And and a lot of us operate without even realizing it from that fear. And and operating from fear is a way, I mean, you know, you do want to have obviously discernment, <laughs> right? You're not like you don't want to just like drive your car, you know, with your eyes closed or something, but um but within the realm of like being a reasonable, respectful human being, um, you don't really want to operate from a place of fear, like fear of death. You want to operate from a place of like embracing life and the juiciness and 
you know, delight of, of life and getting to experience as many things as we can. So, you know, that experience that your, your father described is really incredible and beautiful. And I think, you know, there is a whole history over millennia of rites of passage. And, you know, I also practice ancient astrology. It's sort of like my pet thing that I really love. And um, it's so complex. People don't believe how complex it is. You know, I, I practice Hellenistic astrology with some Arabic astrology, but also obviously like Vedic astrology is incredible and so complex and fascinating. And um, I'm bringing it up because there are transits that every single human being goes to through at certain ages of their lives. Like there's the Saturn return at 28 to 30, which is really actually when, when ancient mystics said we enter adulthood. And then there's like a Uranus opposition, which is kind of around 40 to 42. And that is actually um, the beginning of middle age and sort of like, hey, are you living in a truthful way? Are you living authentically? And then there's the Chiron return, which is, you know, I'm in right now, in fact, which is, you know, around 49, 50 years old, when you start to not live from your wounds and recognize how you have been living from your wounds and kind of look forward and say, you know what, like, I don't want to live that way anymore. And then the second Saturn return at 58 to 60 and so on. And I'm bringing this up because all throughout human history, there have been rites of passage. And those are periods where altering consciousness and ceremony to honor this experience, this transition from one identity to the next is incredibly pivotal. And one of the things I write about in my book is all about um, actually the cave paintings which I learned about, you know, in like, I don't know, fifth grade or seventh grade, these, you know, cave paintings. And I was like, ooh, you know, those people were primitive and made ugly paintings, you know, and just it's about their daily life and what they did. No, cave paintings for the most part are found very, very deep inside of caves where there's no natural light. People would not have been living in those areas, low oxygen level, complete darkness. And if you actually learn about these cave paintings, a lot of them are shamanic drawings. Sometimes there's actually pictures of mushrooms or cacti or other known psychedelic master plants. And in fact, sometimes there's DNA um, of let's say datura, which is a kind of master plant or um, other kinds of, of psychedelic plants. And, and as a side point, a lot of them may think were drawn by women based on hand size and other things, which is just interesting. But the point is that there were rites of passage and ceremonies with master plants, probably right in this sensory deprived area, deep in a cave that um, then they drew about, right? These shamanic drawings, half human, half animal, et cetera, et cetera, to kind of guide people through these transitions and, and transitions into the next life, right? As your father kind of described. And so how incredible, how beautiful that he got to have an experience like that because now, you know, from 74 till whenever, he is gonna live his life probably quite differently because he's has a sense of peacefulness. So, you know, there will be maybe less fear and more juiciness in his life. You know, I'm so curious, you know, 40 minutes into this podcast, it seems like there's so many incredible benefits with plant medicine, but is there anyone who you think, you know, as a doctor who shouldn't even pursue it or try it? Hmm, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I think, um, I don't think that big doses of plant medicines are for everyone. 
at all. And um, for me, you know, I, so I want to kind of even maybe back up a little bit and say, um, you know, I talked about master plants that um, in indigenous communities, and these are the custodians and the wisdom holders of, of this, you know, technology, right, for, for millennia, literally for millennia. And they are called master plants because they are masters. They are transmitters of knowledge and they are considered to be not things, not tools, not drugs, not psychedelics, but, but beings, okay? And I say this because the experience of psychedelic master plants or any psychedelics at all, it is a relationship. It is a relationship with a being, um, with a teacher, with a master, however you wanna think about it, it is a relationship and the whole experience, and this is to go back to the point of, um, you know, abuse and use and uh, like, like tobacco or the coca plant or even coffee, right? That we can overuse and abuse. And that has to do not with the fact that the master teacher, master plant itself is, um, or themselves are bad, right? They're neither bad nor good, but they are powerful. They are powerful. And when we come to this relationship without reverence, without preparation, without an offering, without gratitude, without being in what I call right relationship, and I do unpack that because it's also something we can learn for literally everything and everyone we interact with, those plants can destroy you, right? I mean, we've seen that. We saw it with the opium poppy. We're seeing it right now, right? The opioid epidemic. This started with the opium poppy, very powerful master plant, very important. And, and look what it's doing because of how we commoditized the plant, right? Same with the coca plant, right? We made cocaine and cocaine still to this day destroys a lot of lives. Um, similar with tobacco, right? Tobacco is the most sacred plant around the world. And I write about this in my book. People are always so surprised when I talk about tobacco as being sacred. Every culture around the world, nearly every culture has a sense of sanctifying tobacco and consider tobacco to be the most powerfully sacred plant but most people think of it as a drug of abuse, essentially, right? And want to avoid it, think tobacco's bad. Tobacco's not bad, tobacco's powerful, right? And so the experience we have with these plants has to do with our relationship with the plants and our relationship with power too. Um, and we're not, humans are not super at navigating power. <laughs> we struggle with that. So to your point, is this for everyone? It is clear that um, people hear the call of these plants. And when I say plants, I wanna just also be clear, master plants is not botanical. It's, it's not technical, it's flora, fauna, fungi, right? That's, they're just referred to as master plants. It's not like, I'm not trying to be scientific in, in when, I say, when I'm saying that. But um, ultimately, when you feel the call, the first thing in my mind to do is read or look at pictures or right, like there are very, grow the plant. I've had people that I do microdosing coaching with, for example, that have tobacco addiction. I've had them grow tobacco plants and care for the tobacco plants as a way to start to be in right relationship with the plants. And that can really shift people out of being in an addiction or a, being a user, right, of, of the plant. So that's number one, when you feel the call, that's already the beginning of the medicine. You don't even have to ingest necessarily to experience 
the medicine once you hear the call, once you start reading. And I have little sections in my book. Chapter five is all about different master plants. So you can know about their lore, about their history, a little about their science, about the kind of experience someone might have. Sometimes that's enough, right? Then there are different ways to dose. I know that people who are big psychedelic proponents think every single person in the world is supposed to have big doses. I strongly disagree with that. Strongly disagree. I think there are, uh, first of all, there's a time and place. And so it's not like for everyone right now, and it's not for everyone even ever. And then there are people who might really benefit from microdosing, which is incredibly powerful. I think it's like a big, important medicine experience for people. And it's a very small dose. There's no psychedelic experience where you're unable to, you know, operate a car or parent or go to work, but it is unpacking, unfurling, right? Especially with coaching or someone kind of carrying you through, you can really have like a lot of mystical and um, kind of opening of consciousness experiences that, um, and anti-inflammatory effects and all these other things that we think are really beneficial. But that plasticity, that ability to take better care of yourself, that ability to see in how you're hurting yourself in ways that were invisible to you otherwise, right? All of that can happen with microdosing. And it's sub-psychedelic. There are not a lot of studies on microdosing. And the main reason for that is that a lot of places still uh, don't consider psychedelics to be legal. And that's partly, mostly, I would say political, not entirely, but it's pretty political. But we do have a lot of decriminalization um, initiatives and even legalization, like in the state of Oregon, California is now gonna be legalizing and so on. Um, but it's hard to do studies because microdosing, people don't wanna sit in a clinic or a hospital being babysat while they microdose because you feel basically relatively normal and so you know like what you're gonna just like be like okay every other day or every third day i'm just gonna like sit here for the entire day no so that's an issue and then the third kind of dosing is actually quantum dosing and this is it could be like reading about the plant it could be growing the plant i grow master plants i grow an ayahuasca vine that's over 10 years old i have many san pedro cacti i grow many brugmancias now somehow they keep <laughs> multiplying um, I grow uh, tobacco, I grow a lot of sacred plants and that is actually how I experience their medicine. I don't ingest them. I don't ingest them. I, I work with them and they transmit to me. I mean, I, wow. I can only describe it as that. And that's a kind of quantum medicine. The, the front of my book has a slice of an ayahuasca vine. It's like sacred geometry. It's so beautiful. To me, that is a quantum dose of ayahuasca just by looking at the cover of my book. And, um, and then there are drops and this kind of product that we created called Quantum Drops, which is um, made with these master plants um, that I grow actually, and, um, but it doesn't contain any plant matter. So it's a vibrational and it's made with ceremony. I made them actually, I'll say very briefly, because I was working with my plants, you know, tending them, which is, I mean, they're, they're, they're divas, these plants, and they're very, they're like, they're hardcore, you know, I could tell a lot of stories, but, um, but I got this very strong message. Why do people think they need to ingest us to experience our medicine? Show them another way. And I was like, oh, like what? And this was many years ago. And, you know, it took a lot of years of kind of feeling resistant as I often do to then being like, well, how could I do this? And kind of playing with it and then working with people and seeing how they experienced it, you know, obviously with their consent. And then ultimately, you know, creating something that has been really transformative 
um, and a lot of doctors and therapists are using them now because they're legal, they're safe. If you're sober, you're pregnant or all of those things. But I actually think that there are a lot of different ways to engage with master plants. And it doesn't even involve always ingesting. And you can experience that transformation in that medicine. So I'm curious, you know, so I look around and I see a lot of people dealing with mental health crisis and I hear a new situation every week from a friend or a family member's friend of maybe marijuana-induced psychosis or abusing other drugs. And I'm curious, you know, what's your hope for the future of master plans and psychedelics? Because I see so many benefits for people who are dealing with mental health struggles. But then I'm also curious, like, will this be abused as it starts to become legalized? Will people start to use it without support? So in an ideal world, how do you envision people use this on a broader scale? Yeah, I mean, this is really why I wrote my book, was to explore this question and really talk about like quantum medicine in a sense and ceremony as the medicine, really, right? Rather than us thinking that we need to engage in right? These big giant experiences all the time, you know, for healing. And at the same time, understanding that um, these are life-saving. They are life-saving. And sometimes a big macrodose is the difference between someone being able to live a meaningful, productive, enjoyable um, life and, and exactly the opposite. So um, we're in a really precarious moment because of exactly what you said, because we are um, really a, a world of, as one of my mentors says, colonized colonizers. We all have that within us because we live in an empire world where um, we commoditize everything and we think that they're things and not beings, right? So we are in a very precarious moment. And I think even the idea of saying, how do we use these, right? Like if we can start changing even our vocabulary, like how can we ally with these or how can we be in relationship with these, um, you know, plants to start kind of pulling away our plant blindness, right? Where plants just look like backdrop to us and thinking of them really as being like important relations, kin, you know, for us, I think that's right. I think this is a perspective issue to a great degree. And, and also it's going to be, I mean, we know right now pharmaceutical companies are creating, you know, ayahuasca without the vomiting and psychedelics, you know, or like all these different sort of versions of psychedelics that are just basically creating plasticity or opening these windows of plasticity, they're called. Um, and we know that's very addictive drugs. You know, the, as a, a drug, let's say, becomes a drug, right, like cocaine, um, we know that those create a lot of plasticity in the brain, but they create plasticity that makes us go back again and again and again and again and feel like we need that. And I have heard scientists say, I'm worried that we are now about to create a whole new set of very addictive substances out of these very complex plants, right? That have thousands of compounds. Like we want to take this one compound and alter it and then be able to make a designer drug that, right? So there is a lot of concern and um, I don't have perfect answers for this, I think, but we know what has happened in the past when we have not come in right relationship. So for me, I think that there is a way to go forward where we can be respectful, um, where we can understand that we don't have to utilize massive amounts and deplete um, quantities of things like, you know, the ayahuasca vine and so on, learning about how to be sustainable, learning from indigenous teachers, 
being in conversation with the wisdom holders, you know, and really opening ourselves up to not being, you know, users in the way that we have been. I, I write about in my book that when I went to Ecuador and was learning for the first time, people called um, people from the global north, people there called us junkies. And they didn't just mean drugs, although I'm sure they also meant that, but they meant um, that we're just, we're takers, we're users. We just deplete things and we just want more, 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 more. And we don't really think of things um, as sacred or sacraments or, or really understand being in relationship. And so it's really like these plants teach us to be in right relationship. They teach us that everything around us is alive. That's a very common part of a mystical psychedelic experience is to say, I saw like everything around me was alive. You know, I could see this like invisible connection and web that we're all a part of. It's very common. And so it's understanding that we are not us versus them, which is I think our mental health crisis and the life that we live and instead understanding it is me and we, and that we are only as strong as the care we give and the support we give to the very weakest or, or uh, most vulnerable at any given moment. And so it's an unfolding, it's a new story, it's something we will all co-create together. And um, I think it could be really beautiful. I don't, I don't think that's just Pollyanna-ish. I think we, by all talking about it and by all coming um, with intention and modeling, it will change the trajectory. Well, beautiful, that's so Maya. beautiful. Yeah, yeah. That's. I mean, I'm already thinking about now my relationship with just nature and the things that I eat. Right, like we need to give all of those things more respect. It's just, it just makes life more beautiful. So I appreciate everything that you're saying and teaching us all about this today. We need to do another podcast in the future on astrology because yes. that would be very fun. Um, but thank you so much for being here and super appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.